Right now on Fast, the unstoppable. Major averages keep powering higher despite new signs. The consumers tapping the brakes on spending and dealing with new headwinds coming from the debt ceiling deal in Washington. The bull bear tug of war straight ahead. Plus, cashing out why wealthy investors are pulling their money out of stocks and piling into cold, hard cash. The details on their slow money plays straight ahead. Plus, Apple closing in on new highs ahead of the big developers conference. Netflix surging before kicking off its shareholder meeting. And Carvana keeps on trucking. What's behind their nearly 50% gain in just the past five days? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Victoria Fernandez of Crossmark Global. We start off with new nine-month highs for the markets. The Nasdaq leading the charge up 1.3%, notching its highest close since August 16th. The S&P also hitting levels not seen since that month last Last year. The moves coming even as we see some signs of consumers coming under pressure. Dollar General with its biggest drop on record after the discount retailer slashed its outlook for the year said its core shoppers rainy in spending. All this as we await tomorrow's jobs report, which is expected to show hiring slow to its slowest pace since December 2020. So will big tech's boom continue to boost this market or will consumers slow down, start to pump the brakes on this rally? It seems like these two things are going in parallel, Tim. It's fascinating because the retail uh, performance, whether it's the XRT, we talk about that. But even some of these stalwart names that have been very defensive are, are giving ground. We're going to talk about Lulu, which is uh, certainly overcoming what had been some, t- some tough price action. Uh, it, it's a combination of when you hear a dollar gen talk about the lower income consumer, uh, the reality is that the job market um, may certainly still be strong. And we got those jolts numbers yesterday. But there are some heavy-duty pressures on the consumer. And let's not forget where inflation is hitting them hardest. So it, it's, it's fascinating. I, I think you know, the, the, the disconnect between what's going on with, say, the NASDAQ and the Dow, there's a lot of different quotes out this. The journal was quoting that that chasm between the performance of the Dow and the NASDAQ in May was the widest since October 2001. And I think Dan probably has some ideas about what was going on back then. I mean, in other words, it's the kind of stuff you saw right before things got kind of nasty. And, and yeah, I... Not going to say that, but the fact is that the consumer and consumption is the biggest part of our economy. We know manufacturing is deep recession right now. We got more data. Um, retailers not trading so well. Yeah, um, Dollar General. I mean, in terms of what they said that was so disturbing, they they said that their consumers trading down to food banks. I mean, that things are so bad in terms of food inflation, the removal of the child tax credit, and a lot of other headwinds. Yeah, and, and I guess you know when you think about what's in this. Um negotiated bill here, right? So the debt ceiling relief, I mean, and, and you brought it up earlier today, we were talking about it. I mean, like the moratorium on student, I mean, let, think about this. If you had student loans, you didn't have to pay it for the last three years, right? And so let's people, people who have student loans, right? Probably an age group that maybe are not doing the smartest things with their money anyway. They're YOLOing trips to whatever, this, that, whatever. All of a sudden, this does have the potential to really slow down uh, the pace of, you know, we went from the goods during the pandemic and the demand for them to services. And, you know, we're seeing that in a lot of companies, at least in the stocks, the way they've acted over the last couple of months, they've really slowed down a bit. And to Tim's point about that gap between, let's say, the uh, the NASDAQ and the Dow, that does bring us back to those periods right before, you know, the dot-com and the NASDAQ um, just imploded. And there's another stat here. If you look at um, the, the the gap between the market cap weighted S&P 500 versus the equal, um, you know, the equal weight, it's basically flat on the year versus a, an S&P that's up 10.5%. The last time it was that wide was the year 1999, right? Right before we saw all those dynamics 
dynamics kind of shifting. So you can say, well, you know, these names are different. This is different this time. We had a, a nice little debate about this the other day on the show. The one thing I'll say is like the more stats that you read about what's powering this AI boom for all these big platform companies is that the cost to compute and then commercializing these things, it's really expensive, right? And so this is what we're seeing right now is the CapEx build into that. But once we don't have the ways that these companies can monetize it, I think you might see into a sl- slowing economy, which is kind of clear what we have right now, you might see that spend pull back a little bit and therefore these largest names might pull back also. I guess I'm not seeing the spend pullback on anything AI related, right? I think that um, we're early in that. I understand the bubbleishness yep. of it, but to me it feels pretty early in the bubble. And I think that when the bubble ends, it's going to be like, wow, all this money spent, but what do the, what do the buyers have for it? for building up this AI so much? Were they able to monetize it? I'm not sure. But the other part today, talking about the discretionary spend, the consumer really being hurt, you know, Dollar General. But we also look at Macy's, and Macy's really talked about um, a couple of things that I thought was interesting. The $75,000 and under consumer, really sort of feeling the feeling the, this tightness of, you know, inflation and maybe some uncertainty. And that's 50% um, of their Yes. Consumers, yeah. And so that was really important to them. I and mean, we think of Bloomingdale's, but that, that was better. But uh, so Macy's was weak. But also, interestingly, the quarter started out fine. And then mid-March, they cite mid-March, which was we know when SVB happened and the banking crisis started. And then I think there was some, in there April some residual banking crisis, but also fears about the debt ceiling. We don't know May. We don't, so I, I'm wondering if maybe we'll see a little bit of a bounce there. Some of the commentary hasn't been great about there being a giant bounce in May. But I thought it was interesting. Macy's has been down a couple of times on others missing, including Capri, which we know is a big wholesaler, to Macy's. um, And yet they were able to actually turn it around. And so, you know, bad news, decent price decent price reaction. That would have been like a guy thing. Um, I thought that that was sort of, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to look for something hopeful uh, from the consumer that I think is still is still there. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, how do you think about the consumer and whether or not, uh, you know, this AI led tech rally that we're seeing, if it can go on in the face of, of headwinds to the consumer? So I think I'm going to try to bring a little bit of that hopefulness for Karen here. You know, Dan's talking about the dichotomy that we're seeing between the NASDAQ, the cap-weighted S&P, the equal-weighted S&P. I think you see that same dichotomy within the consumer space. So you look at those higher income consumers, we'll talk about them a little bit in regards to Lulu later, but look at the lower income versus higher income dollar general, as you mentioned, going down to the food banks from them, whereas the higher income consumer is still spending, maybe not quite as much, maybe they're going down the cost scale a little bit, but let's look at where the consumer sits. Their savings rate, except for the last reading we got, the whole rest of 2023, savings rates have gone higher, so they have a little bit of cushion. Quit rates are not quite as high, so it's telling us maybe things are starting to stabilize there, which means wages will start to stabilize. If inflation is coming down, then that's going to help income, real income for them. And let's look at oil prices. Oil is now 190 days in a row below its 200-day moving average. That's the fifth longest trend we've seen. If that flows through to gasoline prices, disposable income goes up. 
for consumers again. So I do think there's a little bit of optimism here that the consumer can hold on. I think you need to play it maybe with some of the discount stores where higher income consumers are moving down as we go through the rest of this year. You know, it's interesting. When you come to discretionary, uh, there's three stocks that really stick out. And I know that Nike is trading up in sympathy right now with Lulu in the aftermarket. It was down 20% in the month of May from its highs. Starbucks was down 15% in the month of May from its highs. Disney, now I know they had earnings, was down 15% in the month of May from its highs. And so when you think about what we're talking on the low end, and then let's say that is kind of a mid-range, but is very discretionary to the high end, you know, I mean, sometimes you have to look at the stock market and, and see what it's telling you a little bit. And so, you know, it, it's interesting. To, so you see all this other stuff that's YOLOing. Literally, I, I mean, I can't believe we're still talking about Carvana. It's a zero. You know what I mean? But we're talking about it because it's up 50 percent. And who's buying it? You know what I mean? An upstart. Remember that one? We don't know what it does, but it went up. You know, this now, whatever. <laughs> we're talking about that again. It's up 300 percent from that. Whatever. So I think there's a lot of behavior that's going on in the stock market, which should not make you feel bullish, in my opinion. And then look at three companies that we all engage with on a daily basis and look at the stocks of those company and look how they're trading. And so to me, I would actually almost put some more weight in those uh, in the price action we've seen in the last month. Well, I, you know, the, I'm sure Nike and to me, it's a valuation call. There's nothing broken about Nike. It's a company I've loved forever, mostly been on the long side. I just think that the multiple got to be a place where why am I paying more for Nike in this environment with rates 500 basis points higher? A lot of pull forward other than Dan, who probably has a different pair of sneakers for every day of the month. You know, I don't. And, and at some point, you know, having bought four or five during COVID, because why not? Um, I'm pretty much tapped out. But, you know, Starbucks went 22 percent or so into that high before it pulled back and gave some numbers and and I think to me, again, it was I think Starbucks, we, we've I've lamented the inflation at Starbucks. I'll say this. There's a lot of these companies and I think it's CMG. I think it's Starbucks. I don't think they're going to be able to pass on prices the way that they have been. And that's been the, the, the glory train for them over the last two we years. We just talked yesterday about how everything is coming down. All these prices are coming down in terms of disinflation. Uh, that absolutely. may be a signal. Prices of, raw know, materials or prices like inputs, inputs, inputs. inputs. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Inputs. I guess it's a matter of whether or not whether companies are going to pass. Exactly. It on or if there's going to yeah. be greedflation. But I, I, I think, <laughs> look, I, I, at 95 bucks, I want to own Nike again. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a place where at Starbucks, you know, around 95 bucks, we're getting close. It was trading up to 118, 119. These, these companies, I, I think, didn't deserve those multiples. But when you pulled back that multiple 20 to 25 percent, um, I just think there's a lot of rotation. I feel like there's sort of an embedded China play in there. They were all hyped up on the reopen. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of fizzled. And so I think that was part of what brought Starbucks down and Nike down. And so I wonder, I don't know if you're if you're bullish on China, which I think you are. Right. Is this sort of an mildly? Uh, I mean, I, I just think we have had a voracious risk on appetite for markets. And you, you don't reach out and grab Starbucks, you know, in that environment. And, and I'm just talking about the character of the market here um, is such that whereas six weeks ago, uh, people were very bearish, pessimists looking for health care, looking for right. staples, looking for these places to, to hide out. And, and I think right. No one wants to hide out right now. In fact, professional managers are behind the curve if they've missed this rally. All right. For more on consumer spending slowdown, let's bring in Greg Dacko, chief economist at EY. Greg, great to have you with us. How do you think about about the consumer and the headwinds that we're hearing about from retailers? And yet we have a market that seems to be raging because of this AI boom. Well, I think what we're seeing is a story of nuance. We are seeing a retrenchment in uh, no retrenchment really in consumer spending, but we are seeing softening momentum when it comes to spending activity. Uh, if you look at some of the drivers of consumer spending, uh, there are an increasing number of headwinds. We're still in an environment of high inflation, and more importantly for consumers, high prices, 
We have high interest rates and we have fundamentals that supposedly drive consumer spending that are softening. The labor market is cooling. We're seeing uh, increased evidence of excess savings being drawn down. And we have credit conditions that are tightening. Those are all headwinds for consumer spending. We also have the end of the student loan moratorium, um, as you mentioned, you know, higher rates, credit tightening, et cetera. How do you sort of parse out that versus the disinflation that we've seen in raw materials? And it's pretty significant, um, you know, declines that we've seen across the board, whether it be food or energy or metals. I think we are uh, seeing more and more disinflationary momentum across the economy. Uh, I think we have to be careful not to pull out the old playbook when it comes to uh, trying to evaluate the likelihood of a recession in this type of environment. There are unique characteristics in this business cycle. But as you alluded to earlier, we are seeing signs that goods price inflation, commodities price inflation, they're all cooling and cooling rapidly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more disinflationary wins when it comes to some of the service sector activities, including housing and even travel, because at these prices, this is preventing some consumers from traveling and from enjoying leisure activities. So I would expect that as we look into the next six months and into 2024, we're going to see slower consumer spending, not a retrenchment again, but slower consumer spending will bring about gradually slower demand overall and less inflationary pressures and I wouldn't be surprised that disinflation surprises us to the downside. Greg, why not deflation? You know, I, I mean, how about getting back to a place where we were pre-COVID? I mean, all of the COVID pressures uh, are going to go away. Um, we've seen this on supply chain. We've seen this on reopening. It's all taking a lot longer than expected. But remember, the problem in 2018 was deflation. The Fed was having trouble getting to 2%. And, and, you know, maybe that number was never right. And we all know where the labor market is. And we all, at least on this desk, tell you we think that's very lagging. Why not deflation? I mean, why are we not going to go back to where we were? Why has the world suddenly changed? Well, I don't necessarily think that we're going to be experiencing deflation in the sense that deflation is an environment where prices are falling. That generally coincides with an environment that is recessionary and severely recessionary. If we were to get back to an environment where inflation is stable, let's say back around 2%, that would be good enough because it would give the Fed the impression that essentially there is that price stability element with sustainable growth and sustainable price uh, acceleration. That would be the type of environment that the Fed is aiming for. Deflation would really be an environment where we see, if it's broad based, uh, really a retrenchment in private sector activity. That's not really what we want to be seeing. We're still aiming for that soft landing, that environment where inflation comes down without creating a recession. I think the landing strip is really short and narrow. There's still a possibility of, of a soft landing. But increasingly, we're seeing that there are decisions that are being made that are nonlinear. You're not just looking at businesses and consumers deciding to spend a little less or invest a little less, but actually stop investing or stop spending, especially for lower end consumers. And that can be a real risk for the U.S. economy. Greg, thanks. Greg Daco. Thank you very much. EY. Victoria, I mean, I, I think that's an important distinction. It, it, call it whatever you want. What consumers are actually doing is really what matters. It is. I mean, that's the majority of our economy is what the consumers are doing. So you have to focus on it. And as we were talking a little bit earlier, and as Greg mentioned, it's not that the consumer's going away. You know, the Fed talked a long time about 
kind of destroying demand and we needed the consumer to actually kind of fall off the edge of a cliff is what a lot of people were saying. And that's just not going to happen. I think there was an, uh, people underestimating the strength of the consumer and the savings that they had built up during COVID. So now they're there, they're going to start or they're going to continue to spend, but at a lower price range than what they were doing before. And I think that's what Greg is alluding to. I think that's what is going to keep us from going into a bigger recession than what we would otherwise. I still think we're going to get a mild recession at the end of this year, but it's the consumer that's going to keep it mild at that point. And I think as you talk about stocks around the consumer, yes, everyone loves the, the AI stocks and that's what's driving the market right now. But you have to look out towards the end of the year and say, how can I capture a little bit of this consumer um, spending that we're going to get? And I think that's a name like a TJX. Maybe you look at housing. Housing has been up as of late. Perhaps you play that a little bit with a name like Lowe's. I think you can find opportunities and not just leave the consumer in the dust. All right. Meantime, we've got an earnings alert on Lululemon shares soaring after a top and bottom line beat. The athleisure brand also seeing accelerated sales in China, issuing strong full-year guidance. CNBC's Seema Modi has been listening into the conference call. Seema, what's the latest? Melissa, I have, and so far, no comments about a consumer pullback. CEO Calvin McDonald started the earnings call really touting the strength outside the U.S. with international sales increasing 60% year over year, led by a meaningful acceleration. Yes, in China, where it saw revenue increase 79%. McDonald, in fact, just returned from Shanghai, where he said he was impressed by the positive reception of the Lulu brand on the ground. If we break down the categories, uh, women's category up 22%, men's up 17%, while accessories were up 67%, which McDonald says, you know, is the smallest of the three categories. However, he's optimistic about the runway for accessories, accessories, including backpacks and footwear. Lulu also continues to build out its tennis and golf wear. He also called out the growth in women's bottoms up 22% driven by its dance studio pant. Taking a look at shares of Lulu underperforming this month, but as you can see, surging in overtime by 13%. Mel? Seema, thanks. Seema Modi, and don't miss a post-earnings interview with Lululemon CEO Calvin Harrison. It's Walk on the Street tomorrow in the 10 a.m. hour. Uh, Karen, you, would you, you like me to address the growth of women's bottoms? I mean, is that what you're after? Better you yes. than me. Women's bottoms. Right, Karen. right. You know, I liked Lululemon. I haven't been in it for a while. I actually thought they weren't they weren't going to have a stellar quarter, so I blew it. I missed this one, but I actually think it's a little bit more expensive now up here, mm-hmm. up you know thirty dollars. I uh, I don't know where it is right this second. Um, I I really thought that we would see more pressure, but they've done a tremendous job again. Um, I mean, the raising guidance when you don't have to right now, right? It's kind of easy to just not do it. So they must feel very confident. So good for them. I, I, might, I might have missed this one yet again. It's too expensive. Yeah. But, but yeah. Is, is this really going to get away from you? I mean, the way I, I look at it is I, I think is great. They're very much like Nike. They have pricing power. Look at that. That operating margin was 20 percent. They're, they're holding uh, China's growth. They're getting different segments. They have men. Dan, anytime soon? I'm, I'm wearing them. Out of boy. I'm wearing them. Nice. Yeah, so, I've been so, working out a little bit, obviously. <laughs> obviously. No, it's, it, yeah. people have been talking about it. So, I mean, I think you got a case here where, but why would this get away from you? This is my point. I, there's, there's no reason... Uh, um, that I think you need to pay more than 30 times. And I think that's that's kind of the story. This stock also was off 17% into this print. I, the, the, the reaction's not that big of a surprise. If Lulu can come up with a pant, like the men's pant, because men were wearing the Lulu pant to work yes. for women that you can wear to work, 
Interesting initials I mean, on that men's pants. I'm always looking for a better bottom, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> no comment. Morning's action yeah, yes. after the break. Broadcom on the move after reporting details in the quarter next. Plus, could an apple a day mean all-time highs are on the way? Shares nearing a record as the Tech Titans Developers Conference is just days away. The hype ahead of this event is all about a new VR headset. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Broadcom. Shares of the chip stock volatile despite an upbeat uh, Q2 report. Broadcom also projecting year-over-year growth in the current quarter as it ramps up its investment in, what else? AI. AI. Christina Parsonevelis has the latest. Christina. Well, Broadcom shares actually did a complete turnaround. They were negative when the earnings came out, but CEO Hawk Ten took the mic on the analyst call and weighed in, of course, like you said, on the impact from AI-related sales. Ten said that in fiscal year 2022, AI revenue was 10% of total revenues. Right now, he's saying it's 15%, and he anticipates AI revenues to contribute more than 25% of total revenue by end of fiscal year 2024. Tan saying, quote, in fiscal Q3 2023, remember that they're in Q2 right now, or they just uh, posted Q2. He said, we expect that this revenue to exceed 1 billion in the quarter. So that number 1 billion is up from the previous $800 million benchmark. Management also believes that quarterly revenue could double by the end of this year. Considering Broadcom makes custom chips for Google, Meta, and recently signed another multi-billion dollar partnership with Apple, those details for that Apple deal have been scant thus far, which is why investors definitely want to hear about it on the call, which is still underway. One thing we just found out, too, is that Broadcom, we know, is trying to acquire VMware, but has hit a lot of hurdles with regulators. Tan just said that he believes that deal will close this year. He said the same thing last earnings call, too. No? Christina, thanks. Christina Partsnevelis. Uh, Tim, where do you go on Broadcom? Well, it, it, the stock's doubled you know, since October. Um, I get the secular dynamic here where essentially customized chips, the ASIC space, they and Marvell are the two monsters, and their customers are a who's who of every... I mean, yeah, we're talking Apple, we're talking Google, we're talking Meta, we're talking all those folks, and, and they are able to do, they're able to lower uh, power dynamics, be more efficient. You know, that's kind of where they sit, and, and they will continue to be a leader. I just get back to what, what do you want to do at this point? And, and I think, uh, I think the, the best uh, part of this investment cycle for these stocks is, is you're waiting. You're not chasing it. Yeah. Dan? It's funny. A lot of people were chasing last week. You saw the way the stock traded. It traded like nine, nine and a quarter. I mean, this was like three trading days ago, reversed that whole move. And here we are just under $800. I know it's trading up a little bit now, but it's interesting what Capehart said until they actually said or gave some guidance about that 15% of their chip revenue that is going to go to 25%. Again, this is a company that's expected to do $35 billion in sales. When you think about market cap terms, what's going on here, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you can forecast that sort of growth out for much longer than just a couple of quarters, because I think that move from 700 to 925 last week incorporates that. I also think, and I don't know if you guys talked about C3AI and last night, you know, Listen, I think the fever's breaking in some of the names that don't have the, like the direct thing that you can put the finger on. If you can't guide the way NVIDIA did last week, so some of these other names. Let's see how Broadcom closes tomorrow, because I think that could be a really important part. You also saw how Marvel reversed some of those games last week, If you can't guide too. a 50% increase yeah. in your revenue forecast, and you don't get any AI appreciation. I mean, listen, but I, I, again, I know I was a little heated uh, on Tuesday or whatever day it is. Um, you know, again, it was a four... Just Tuesday? Okay. It was a $4 billion guide in the quarter that launched yeah. a half a trillion dollar market right. cap gain across seven or eight yeah. stocks. And that's just uh, feels a little unnatural to me. Victoria, quickly on Broadcom. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great stock and you can have exposure in your portfolio, but it's like the guys are saying, is this where you really want to get in if you don't have it? I think you can look at a name like a Qualcomm trading at 12 times. You can look at Applied Materials, LAM Research 17 times, and you're going to get some of the same benefits, the AI benefits that you have, but maybe not at the same higher cost. I want to hear on the call things about their backlog. That's supposed to be pretty significant still for them, which would be a benefit, and obviously with the Apple agreement. So I think there's there's room here, but I would look other places. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Don't look now, but the world's biggest company is about to break its own record. Apple has quietly come within a stone's throw of its all-time high. So the $3 trillion question, where does it go from here? Plus, Netflix password sharing crackdown taking center stage at the streamer's annual shareholder meeting. How they're tackling the issue, as well as the writer's strike, ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Here is a stat worth some fanfare. Shares of Apple getting within a whisper of a new all-time high. It's the third highest close ever for Apple. And shares are now less than $3 from that record set back in January of 2022. All this happening just days before the company's big worldwide developers conference where they are expected to launch a new VR headset. This would be Apple's first new major project product launch since unveiling the watch in late 2014. I feel like Dan is going to criticize this headset. From the get-go. Well, listen, no one's going to use it. It's going to be like twenty. <laughs> well, no, it's That's going to be it's going to be twenty five hundred dollars. Okay, so like for instance, like think about the moment that we are in right now, in and around AI and all this generative AI and all these large language models, and think where our heads are going and all the tech companies are going. Think back to November of twenty twenty one when Mark Zuckerberg renamed his company from Facebook to Meta and launched this huge vision right. of what he thinks the the future world of computing looks like, and it looked like it through a $2,500 headset. So, so Apple's going to introduce something now. Ultimately, we will all wear some sort of thing on our head that does something that brings us into an augmented reality world or something like that, but not here, right, not right now, and not with this device, because it's just not going to be the sort of thing that a lot of people are going to use right I, now. I get what you're saying, and I think the enthusiasm initially over Meta, or meta, the Metaverse, yeah. not Meta specifically, was a little you know, premature maybe, but Apple, time and time again, has come up with new product categories that we didn't even think we needed. Who thought they needed a watch? I mean, watch has been around forever. Who needs a watch? And yet everybody's wearing an Apple watch now, including myself, who poo-pooed the watch initially. So they repeatedly come up with things that you don't realize you want, then you want it. I agree with that, but, but why is Apple trading to near all-time highs? It's not because of the watch, it's not because of wearables, it's not because of iPads. Um, it's, it's because we now, and I, I'm just looking at a couple different analysts on the street, uh, but everybody does this. They give it two multiples. It's a hybrid multiple. Let's give them a hardware multiple. And, and I'm seeing a hardware multiple of 22 times and, and, and a recurring revenue software multiple of 35 times. I mean, you can throw whatever numbers you want on this. We never did that before. Okay, so, you know, I think uh, the, 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 the quarter Apple just put out was extraordinary. Their ability uh, to, with their balance sheet, to uh, buy back shares, uh, goose up dividends, et cetera, is unlike any company. So 
they deserve what they're getting in the market we have at some point. I think the most important thing, by the way, is that Apple, um, instead of making an all-time high, made a relative high against the S&P about a month ago, which kind of was a harbinger of this move. And I think all of those that do that will be on to all-time highs. So I, I think your point about hardware is really interesting, about new product categories. However, though, the watch didn't take off right away. It True. did. It yes. did. It yes. needed some time, right? right. And, to, and it sort of to found its out w- the functionality, right? right? Developers needed to come around to it. Yeah. So it's a chicken and egg WDC. thing. Do you build the yeah, right the headset or the software first or both? So I think that could happen here. Like to me, I'm not in Apple for this part of the story. And it's so interesting that we saw Meta today put out their $499 headset, which would have been the whole raison d'etre to a year ago. Yeah. Right. And now it's sort of oh, it's an afterthought. Maybe it's good. Maybe it isn't. It doesn't really matter so much because yeah, they have AI. Tor- <laughs> well, there's that <laughs> as well. Right. And they have a tremendous, you know, cash generating machine. But uh, to me, that's not the reason to be an Apple. Those two numbers scare me, though, in terms of the subscription multiple number, which is it's crazy. very high. Yeah. Right. And then the hardware number, which is even higher relative to historical hardware that's numbers. Right. right. Coming up, Netflix about to kick off its annual shareholder meeting with ads and password sharing taking center stage while your next guest is sticking with the streamer. And the stock also catching the eyes of options traders, how they are playing the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Here's another check on how the markets ended the day. Major markets all higher after the House passed the debt ceiling bill. Shares of Carvana surging more than 20 percent, more than tripling this year, but still more than 70 percent off its 52-week high. After hours, MongoDB surging on an earnings and revenue beat. PagerDuty dropping after cutting its revenue outlook. And Sentinel-1 plummeting more than 30 percent on a revenue miss and weak sales guidance. And we do have a news alert on some changes at activist firm Tryon. Co-founder Ed Garden is retiring from the firm to focus on managing his personal investments through his family office. That's according to a statement from the firm. We also know from the Wall Street Journal that Tryon and Nelson Peltz are rebuilding their stake in Disney. Remember, in the past, they have been involved in Disney. They pared back that stake. Apparently, now they're back in. Meantime, Netflix's annual shareholder meeting is about to begin. The stock hitting its highest level since February of 2022 in today's session. Our next guest says the company should take a victory lap tonight. Let's bring in media mogul and CNBC contributor Tom Rogers. He's editor-at-large at Newsweek, former executive chairman of Engine Gaming and, and Media. You've got a lot of other former titles too, Tom, so uh, <laughs> we'll skip those. Otherwise, it'll be the whole segment. Great to have you with us as always. Um, Thank you. You've been, you've been a long-time Netflix bull, and I, I'm just wondering if you think they should just say, you know what, we have won. Do you feel like you, you have been proven right, given what all the other streamers have reported in their quarters? Well, I think I've been proven right that uh, Netflix was going to emerge as the most valuable media company. It is more valuable than Disney today. Uh, If you pull out of Disney, the parks business, which I really consider to be in the travel and leisure area more than media uh, networks, uh, Netflix's media value is probably two or three times the value of Disney as a media company. Uh, But uh, look, Netflix still has things to prove not the least of which is uh, that uh, password sharing, where it said 100 million people are getting the service uh, without paying for it, can be something that they can uh, correct. Uh, I think to the extent they can do that, they will demonstrate that uh, they have an even more powerful franchise than the market is now giving them. Tom Karen, thanks for being on. So uh, excellent call, obviously, over many years to be long uh, Netflix. But so now they're, they're clearly the winner. 
And so how do you think the rest of the field shakes out? It's crowded and everybody else is losing money and content costs are still very high. How do you, I mean, I've been expecting consolidation for a while. It doesn't seem to be happening, but how do you think it plays out from here? Well, Netflix has developed uh, three moats, I think, that make it very difficult for others to emerge on the same level. Uh, they have an enormous content spend where the other traditional media companies are having to pare back. Uh, they have a phenomenal uh, international distribution as well as international production play. And that international global play they have is one that allows them to have uh, much more ability to create value beyond the U.S. where the others are uh, uh, very stuck in terms of some U.S.-centric assets. And then they have enormous cash flow already, something we debated on this show many times. Would they ever be cash flow positive? They're projecting $3.5 billion this year. Compare that to Disney over the last uh, year, which lost about $4 billion in, uh, in cash on its streaming efforts. And you put that uh, cash flow, and it uh, helps them support those other two moats very significantly. So the others are burdened by a traditional business that just continues to decline, and cord cutting is getting worse. And now we're back to 58% of households in the United States having the cable satellite bundle, which was back where we were in 1992, three years after we launched CNBC. And that is just an indication of how difficult the hole is that the traditional media companies have to climb out of. And it's not just being, can they hit profitability in streaming? Can they be profitable enough to make up for that hole and more? And there's a real question mark as to whether they will. Consolidation will probably follow from that. There's no indication that consolidation is going to happen quickly. So in the meantime, the traditional media companies have a lot more to prove than Netflix. So it's interesting, Tom, because you've been skeptical Disney for a while, and it sounds like you're very skeptical specifically of its streaming business. What is it really the legacy business that is preventing it from seeing its streaming potential uh, because it's bogged down by that balance sheet that's laden with debt? Or what is it? Because when Disney announced that they were getting get into the streaming game, everybody thought, oh, they have this amazing content of li of uh, a library of content, I should say. And so who can catch up to Disney on that front? What happened to that? Well, Disney does have a phenomenal library, and that library has value. Warner Brothers has a phenomenal library as well, and that has value. Uh, but as David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, said recently, five shows on HBO represent 90% of their viewing. When you have a statistic like that, the value of a library relative to building a streaming service just is not as important as the kind of of value you can build by creating new shows with the kind of content spend that Netflix can bring forward. Startling statistic, the top 10 list of Nielsen every week that comes out, the combination of all the other streaming services together, Netflix has three times that viewing audience among the top 10 lists and five times greater viewing than its next largest, uh, next uh, biggest competitor in terms of viewing share. So there's just an awful lot there that they're burdened in terms of the existing business, Netflix on a whole other plane. And I think while the assets these other companies have are valuable, they didn't turn out to be as valuable in the streaming world as many initially thought. Tom, always great to see you. Thank you.
Thanks for having me. Tom Rogers, Engine Media, you own it. I own it. Um, and if Guy was here, he would have called Thomas Studd. I'm going to call him the godfather um, because not only the godfather of this network, but really everything media. And, and the call here is that the legacy business that is uh, you know, hampering Disney and all the other players is, is something it's with great irony that the ARPU on the paid sharing that Netflix unleashed is better than the ARPU that they have for other parts of, of the business. So in other words, they're making money on this ad share. It looked like this was out of desperation. It's actually them going to the well and, and being able to leverage off of uh, a very, very deep subscriber base. The fact that on the paid sharing, which went you know last week to the U.S. and 100 other countries around the world, I mean, this is 100 percent margin accretive, 100 percent. So, you know, there was a time everybody thought those announcements were, oh, Netflix is scrambling and, and subs were saturated. I think it's really the opposite. But I think what it says about paid ads and what it can mean for the industry is very exciting. Option traders also bullish heading into Netflix's shareholder meeting. Mike Co has the action. Mike. Yeah, Netflix, always one of the busier single stock options. It was again today. It traded above average options volume as well. Calls out pacing puts by more than two to one. Most of that activity was concentrated in calls that expire tomorrow, but the most active contract that expires beyond that were the June 30th, uh, that's the month ending, 500 strike calls. We saw nearly 8,500 of those trading for a little over a buck a contract. Obviously, that's a small percentage of the current stock price. Buyers of those calls betting that this big run we've seen could continue for another month. That would be a bet that there's another 25% of upside. But of course, there's actually a low probability of that implied by the options market right now, about 10%. You also had options action in Netflix I had a today. little, my own option action, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I'm long Netflix. Uh, it's one of the few times I've been able to buy a stock well. The P.E. at that time was about 20, which is wow. amazing now. It's now in the mid-30s. What a fantastic run. I just feel like i got to take some money off the table. Sold some uh, 400 calls for July expiration. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time coming up. The market may be rallying this year, but the wealthy are still sitting on the sidelines. Do millionaires see more trouble ahead? But first, extraordinarily challenging. That's the outlook from one Goldman Sachs exec. What he is worried about next on Fast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Goldman Sachs Chief Operating Officer calling the macro backdrop extraordinarily challenging. COO John Waldron saying at a Bernstein conference today his firm is more cautious and being run tighter. How should investors take this warning? Victoria, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think they should be. I mean, we talked earlier at the beginning of the show about a little bit of optimism around the consumer, even though we were seeing cracks there. But let's look at the elements that are telling us the economy is slowing. Again, I mentioned earlier, I think we go into a mild recession later this year. You've got very narrow breadth. Everyone's talking about that. You look at the liquidity components we see in the market. Maybe by itself, the liquidity issue is not something extremely detrimental, but you combine it with the narrow leadership. You combine it with negative seasonality in this part of the year, with leading economic indicators that are looking poor. I mean, let's look at the employment cost index up 5% corporate profits down year over year. The Fed, another 25 basis points, who knows, in June, maybe July. But all of that rolled together tells us that there is going to be a pullback later this year. It's going to be um, negative for the economy. And so I think you have to be cautious about that. I think you have to look at it on both sides and say, yeah, there's this great handful of stocks because of AI that's leading the charge. But is it sustainable at the level that it's at right now? And I just don't think it is. So I agree with their statement that you need to be cautious. 
Yeah, Waldron specifically said capital markets are sluggish, signs of strength in equity capital markets, uh, but clients who are taking a pretty, quote-unquote, pretty risk-off tone here. Karen, how do you extrapolate that to some of your bank holdings? Well, I think that actually there, we're seeing some bond deals. There is some activity. That's the part of the business that gets sort of the least multiple, the lowest multiple because it is so lumpy. When times are great, you think, okay, that was a nice quarter, but it's not going to continue. So I'm not so worried about that, although just as we were talking, there's a story of Bank of America talking about a flattish quarter, which wouldn't be terrible. Yeah, yeah. Dan, you're just talking about how banks trade. What was the word today used? Horribly? Yeah, they do. I mean, look at Bank of America is a great example. I mean, that, that stock can't get out of its own way. It was up less than 1% today. I mean, I thought given how poorly the banks traded as a group yesterday, the bounce today was fairly anemic. JP Morgan kind of led the way. I do think, though, interestingly enough, that Goldman did close down on that warning, and I think it makes sense. Yeah. Coming up, sitting on the sidelines in their yachts and mega mansions, why the world's super rich aren't putting money uh, in the market just yet, and what it could take to get them investing again. That and more ahead on Fast. That's right. It's not always about the fast money. Sometimes the best bet is to take things slow. And that's what some wealthy investors seem to be doing right now, keeping a record amount of cash on the sidelines. Robert Frank's got all the details. And Robert, when we say cash, we mean cash or cash and cash equivalents? Cash and cash equivalents. Melissa, you got it right. Wealthy investors still very much in wealth protection mode. The world's ultra high net worth investors That's those with a million dollars or more in investable assets. They now have 34% of their portfolios in cash or those cash equivalents. That's up from 24% a year ago. And it marks a new record high going back more than 20 years. That's all according to a new study from Capgemini out today. Their holdings of stocks are at their lowest level in more than 20 years, with stocks making up just 23% of their total portfolios. And you look at alternatives, that's private equity, hedge funds, other privates, that's holding steady at around 13%. More than two-thirds of these investors say their number one priority right now is wealth preservation. Then you look at family offices, that's investors with $100 million or more. They're also keeping a lot of money on the sidelines. They're planning to add a little bit more fixed income, going from 12 to 15%. And they're going to trim their equity exposures a little bit to 24%. That's according to a new survey from UBS. As one family office told UBS, quote, we are not making big bets on anything right now. So, Melissa, as per that Goldman call you were just talking about, it's a little bit of risk off still for these high net worth and family office investors. Is this backed up, Robert, because you cover all things within the world of wealth. And Karen was just mentioning that the latest art auction wasn't that hot. Um, Is this being sort of bolstered by some of the sales of other things or lack of sales? It is. Karen's absolutely right. You know, very mixed results at the art auctions. You're seeing, you know, prices for very high-end cars, at least on the pre-owned market, down. The watch market's down. And, you know, as it relates to their investments, when you can get 5% plus risk-free relative to the potential upside that is perhaps available in public markets right now. It's interesting that even the smartest, most sophisticated investors in the world are moving toward these cash, cash equivalent, short-term T-bills rather than equities. All right, Robert, thanks. Robert Frank and, and Karen, you're also saying that you have the most treasury exposure you've ever had ever well the bar was life. low but it's now it's yeah. starting to add <laughs> up i mean zero right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and i feel like you know my, for the last however many years we're used to zero percent rates so when i get the chance all right you can have you know one year paper five and a half percent i'm kind of like wait a minute what's the catch 
There isn't one. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you may be foregoing other opportunities to make more, sure. but uh, the risk reward has changed. All right. Up next, final trade. Final trade time, Victoria. We may love AI stocks, but what they can't do yet is produce your toilet paper, your paper towels, your Kleenex. So we say add a little Kimberly Clark to your portfolio. <laughs> Tim. WBD was at one point toilet paper and is coming back from the dead. <laughs> and, and I tell you what, if you look at streaming, uh, this is one of the few that actually may be making money sooner than later. Karen? I almost forgot my final trade, which is Elevance, because the name just really doesn't, it doesn't, this was WellPoint, this was Anthem, this is a gigantic company, not expensive right here. Dan? Yeah, Pfizer looks like it's trying to bottom here. All right, thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.